0: The entire purpose of Jesus' coming was to culminate in the hour, which is the moment of the cross when he became the propitiation for our sins. See, God's sovereignty was clearly at work in preserving Jesus in his work and in his mission for that particular hour. You're listening to I Am, a sermon series at Shoreline Church. For more content, visit ThisIsShoreline.com. Well, how many of you have ever been confused? Let me see your hands. You've been confused. Uh, this week I read about a, a do-it-yourself catalog, and they received the following letter in the mail. This is what they got from one of their subscribers. The person said, I built a birdhouse according to your stupid plans. And not only is it much too big, it keeps blowing out of the tree. Signed, unhappy. Well, the do-it-yourself catalog sent him this reply. Dear unhappy, we're sorry about the mix-up. We accidentally sent you a sailboat blueprint, but if you think you are unhappy, you should read the letter from the guy who came in last in the yacht club (laughs) regatta. (laughs) Small mix-up. Often you and I can get confused about certain things, what we're here for, uh, maybe the purpose for our lives. Last year, we did a study in the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you're here for it. If you weren't, I encourage you to go back and go to our website, our podcast, wherever you get your podcast, and listen uh, to that series where we clarified the purpose of our life, why we're here. But often, we can get confused, and we forget where we're going or where we're from and and what we believe, and it can cause us to lose focus and, and get, well, distracted, very distracted, We thought we're building a sailboat, but we find ourselves sinking uh, because of confusion. And so, in our text this morning, Jesus, we're gonna see Jesus explaining, even in a large section of scripture, he's gonna explain some incredibly important things about himself to a confused group first of family members, then of the Jewish religious leaders, and then, thirdly, of the crowd that's looking and wondering. And we're gonna learn today three foundational things about Jesus as he addresses confused people. And all of them have one thing in common. All of the things that they're confused about can be clarified by one truth. And we're gonna learn that truth today as we open up the scriptures. So if you're taking note, I want you to take a picture of this or jot this down. We're gonna learn today Jesus's hour, the hour or the time uh, for which he came. Secondly, we're gonna look at Jesus's teaching or his doctrine, what Jesus taught. And thirdly, we're gonna look at Jesus's origin. Did he come out of Nazareth? Was he born? of a woman and that's it or does his origin come from somewhere else so we're going to dive in and start with the first foundational correction that Jesus provides uh, about his hour and in this first case it's with his family so look at verse one it says after these things Jesus walked in Galilee Uh, if you've got a pen and you're taking notes and you've got your own bible uh, do me a favor highlight those first three words or circle or underscore them After these things, after the things that we've been looking at and studying, and when John says after, we uh, realize that this chapter is at a much later time than where we left off in John chapter 6. This is right here, John 7, about six months later from where we left off. And chapter 7 marks a new chapter literally in the life of Jesus. This is taking place, if you're taking note, around September or October, which is where we're at today around this time of year, September, October. Uh, and, and only about six months from John chapter 7, only six months from now, uh, Jesus, in around April, uh, will be crucified. And so when verse 1 says Jesus did not want to walk in Judea, the southern part of Israel, because the Jews sought to kill him, that's not an overstatement. That's actually happening. In fact, there are, in this chapter alone, at least seven references Uh, that prove that the Jews, and when I say the Jews, I don't mean just any Jewish person, I mean, and John means the religious leadership that were out to kill Jesus, they were out for him, Um, we're going to see seven times that they're opposed to Jesus. Look look on the screen real real quick with me. Um, We're going to see it in verse 1, verse 13, verses 19, 23, 25, 30, and 35. Okay, church, from here on out, uh, the opposition to Jesus is going to stop at nothing and grow stronger and stronger uh, until they succeed in putting him to death. And so for that reason, Jesus begins to not walk openly in Judea near Jerusalem, uh, but he begins focusing his attention more north on Galilee. And then verse two tells us that during this time, there was a special event. We learned the Feast of Tabernacles, John says, was at hand. Now, John will keep us in that event until the middle of John chapter 10. So the next three chapters, we will be in the same event, the same week-long event. Uh, The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the important feasts and events in the Jewish calendar. If you're a Jewish man and you live within 15 miles of Jerusalem, it was required for you to go to one of the three main feasts. And most Jews would at least go to one uh, of these three uh, in their lifetime. And this one took place, the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, took place at harvest time very special time very joyous festive time and we're because of time next week we're going to dive more into detail on the feast of tabernacles feast of booths so your homework for next week is to go and read a little bit of maybe google search and get to know the feast of tabernacles it'll make sense so we come together next week you're ready to dive in does that make sense so please look that over that's your assignment for this week Um, in the meantime let me just give you a quick synopsis feast of booths feast of tabernacles was a memorial that was ordained by God to help the Israelites remember how faithful God had been to them in their wilderness wandering it was a time of remembrance it was a time to look back and reflect and so most people had little flat roofs And you would, during this week, the seven, eight day time period, you would go up on the roof with your children and you would build little tents, little booths, and your kids would look up at the stars and they'd say, dad, mom, this is the best week ever. What are we doing this for? And you as a parent would be able to say, well, God was so faithful as we didn't have a place of our own. He was our home. He He tabernacled among us, kind of a picture of what Jesus would do. And so it was a very temporal kind of, we're setting up a tent, we're tearing it down. It was a very joyous time as people reflected back. Parents, by the way, we need to set up stones of remembrance. There needs to be maybe dates or traditions, things that we look back and remember, special moments. Uh, We need to make sure we do that as as a family, amen? We need to remember those special times in our family and special um, things that we observe. And so basically, it was one big national camp there's a camp out. Can you imagine? Now, <clears throat> I've been camping multiple times, and, um, and uh, camping is always a, what's the right adjective? It's always a, a, a great time. It's a great time camping. Uh, always a fabulous use of my hard-earned resources. Um, uh, when we go camping, we like to stay at a place, um, it's a special place, I think we have a picture of it. That's where we go when we go camp. Oh, you've been. You've been. You've been to that campground. Good. No, 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 I mean, I mean, there's nothing like pain to sleep outdoors, absolutely nothing like that. There's no greater comfort than knowing that between me and a bear or a wild boar or a wolf is that protective layer of vinyl that's actually not even doing a good job keeping the dew and the rain out of my tent. Nothing like camping, no. I actually, you know, I've been camping in Florida and then I realized they invented um, drywall and air conditioning. No, I'm just kidding, no, no. The camping's great, but um, they would basically spend this time uh, and enjoy this memorial as a family, as a community. And so the feast, John says, is at hand. And look who decides to give Jesus some ministry advice. Look at verse three. His brothers therefore said to him, "Depart from here, go down into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly." If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait, hold on, wait, wait, Jesus has brothers? No, he doesn't. Yes, yes, Jesus had brothers. Jesus had sisters. Uh, The Bible clearly reveals that Mary was a virgin before Jesus was born, which of course is true. Uh, But Roman Catholic doctrine goes beyond that orthodox notion and states that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she was a virgin virgin perpetually forever and this is what's called catholic dogma meaning if you don't believe this you cannot be a catholic okay if you reject that belief and so catholics would promote what's called the theotokos which is where mary is the mother of god and her virginity is then kind of preserved through childbearing of the messiah and thus makes her now holy and kind of a co redemptrix with christ And so Catholics will make statements when they come to passages like this and say, well, I mean, you know, brothers means like his cousins, his family, uh, or, um, you know, these are Joseph's children from a previous marriage before he came together with Mary. And and these are just silly. Um, On the screen, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, says it pretty clearly. People were arguing and confused, and it says that they said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, very clear there. Uh, Jesus was conceived of the Virgin uh, Mary, but Matthew one twenty five. I want you to jot this down, Matthew 1.25 uh, says that Joseph did not know her, Matthew one twenty five. he didn't know her, meaning he didn't have sex with her, until after Jesus was born. And then after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph consummated their marriage, and had additional children. According to Mark, at least four sons, several daughters. So um, James and Judas, on the verse Mark 6, um, Judas is also known as Jude. They would eventually believe in Jesus, but at the time of the feast here, they did not believe in him. So notice their advice in verses 3 and 4. They're telling Jesus, depart from here and go into Judea. Why? Why? Well, they said, so your disciples can see the works that you are doing. In other words, Jesus, you need new PR. Jesus, you need a marketing manager, and you're doing it all wrong, bro. Let me explain what you need to do. You've got to not keep this Messiah thing to yourself. You need to show up in Jerusalem. What an awesome opportunity. The feast will be there, and you can walk in and let everyone know that you are the Christ. You're going to build your following. Okay. Now, this is very disingenuous because of verse 5. Did you see verse 5? Verse 5 says, that even his brothers did not believe in him. Okay, they're saying this because they don't believe in him. So why did they want him to go to Jerusalem and reveal himself? Well, one possible reason is that maybe there is a selfish motive behind it. I mean, these are young men. Maybe they're trying to get business. Maybe there's a selfish business motive. You know, later they're gonna say maybe business cards, like, hey, I don't know if you heard, but um, my brother's Jesus, so you need to cut me a good deal, or I'll be bringing Jesus into this. You know, maybe, did you see what Jesus did in the temple? Don't mess with me. I mean, maybe that's what it was. We don't know. Maybe it's a good pickup line. Like, hey, I don't know uh, if you heard of me. My name's Joseph. You've heard of Jesus. I'm his younger brother. Okay, try Joseph. I don't know if, you, if, if that's what it was. Um, uh, if some people leave, the half-brothers of Jesus were jealous of him, and so they wanted him to go show himself so he would be killed. I mean, that, if that's true, that's very grievous, if their motives weren't for selfish gain, then probably they're just giving Jesus input on how he should do ministry. It never ceases to amaze me how many of my family, Jen's family, who are not believers will offer up their ministry advice to us. And sometimes it's, you know, not bad advice. It's, it's uh, there's some wisdom to it, but other times we just kind of shake our head and go, uh, thank you so much, and we smile. Uh, maybe Jesus's brothers wanted to give him their ideas of what successful Messiah Uh, would look like hey Jesus you know you need to read this book seven steps to messiahship or hey have you read this one it's new conquering the world for dummies you should read this Jesus we don't know we don't know why they're doing this but their desire is that people would see the miracles and he would become a celebrity but listen church that's not why Jesus came Jesus didn't come church to gain or garner a huge following he wasn't seeking celebrity status and if that were the case, we would have just rewound to chapter 6 and last, the last two weeks of teaching and text, where Jesus has a huge crowd of thousands of people, but rather than capitulating to their cravings, what do we see Jesus doing? He's thinning the crowd down with the reality of who he was and what he was seeking to do. So if all Jesus wanted was to be popular, to be liked, or to reign in his first coming, then he would have let the zealots crown him in that moment, uh, then and there. Just for a minute, while we're on this topic, I want to see a little, little audience participation. I'm going to put some names on the screen, and I want to see if you know this name, if you've heard this name, and don't feign um, smarts, don't pretend to know if you don't know. If you've never heard the name, don't raise your hand. Okay, it's church. Jesus is watching. Uh, but here we go. Let me put these on the screen. If you know the name, raise your hand. How many of you have heard of Owen D. Young? How many of you have heard of Pierre Laval? Hugh S. Johnson. Anyone ever heard of them? James F. Burns, Mohammed Masadeh, or Harlow Curtis. Okay, I think one or two of you raised your hand total. You should know those names. According to Time Magazine, each one of those names represented someone who was Person of the Year, meaning that Time established that that year, that person, more than anyone else on the planet, was the most influential, important person on planet Earth. And isn't it interesting, just a generation or two later, the celebrity of today becomes the forgotten of tomorrow. Jesus wasn't here. His purpose wasn't to come and make a name for himself. His half brothers want him to show himself, but they didn't believe in him, and they didn't believe in him yet, because we know James and Jude eventually will write an epistle in the New Testament. So what happened? What, what changed? Uh, notice with me, guys. It, it doesn't look like you believe me. Look at look at James. James opens his his epistle. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his half-brother saying, I am a servant, a doulos, I'm a bond slave to my half-brother Jesus. Any younger siblings in here wanna agree with that one? I'm gonna be a bond slave to my older brother. No, if we're older brothers, then we're kinda like, yeah, my younger should be a bond slave. But James says that, look at what Jude says. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of, James, he doesn't even say, I'm worthy of being called a brother of Jesus. I am a servant. Of Jesus. What changed from, go to Jerusalem, I don't believe in you, to, I'm now a servant of Jesus Christ? What changed? See, this is an incredible proof of the power of the resurrection, guys. Someone close to Jesus who doesn't believe in Jesus sees Jesus risen from the grave and eventually places their faith in him for salvation. The historical fact of the resurrection is proven, and we can place our faith in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. But at this point, John 7, 5, they don't believe in him. So look at Jesus's response in verse six. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. By the way, that's what the same response will be with us. If we'll proclaim truth, the world will hate and reject us. You, verse 8, go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. You'll note with me that phrase Jesus says, My time has not yet come. Would you do me a favor and circle that, that it's a mega theme in the Gospel of John. My time has not yet come. Now, the word for time here is not a poor translation, but there's a better word for it. There's a better word, and that's the word hour. In fact, John will get that in the New King James translation down in verse 30. My hour has not yet come. Uh, You guys remember, remember back in John chapter two, remember we learned about Jesus turning the water into wine and Mary his mother came to him and said hey you need to do this thing hey they're out of wine remember John 2 4 on the screen Uh, Jesus replied to her dear woman why do you involve me my time my hour has not yet come three times in our text this morning verse 6 verse 8 verse 30 we learn that Jesus's time has not yet come Here's a little preview for a few weeks from now. John chapter eight, verse 20 says, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. Jesus affirms it. John, the gospel writer, affirms it. And and Jesus here tells his brothers, his hour has not yet come when they say, you should go to the feast. But, But then in verse 10, Jesus still ends up going. Why? I thought his time had not yet come. Uh, This is important, church. I want you to know this. Jesus was on a timeline, but it was not according to man. It was not according to his brothers. Uh, It was according to the Father. Jesus didn't entrust himself to any man, including his own family. And maybe that's a word for someone here today who's maybe scared of pursuing something the Lord has for you, and you're supposed to obey rather than listening to uh, maybe even your own family's worldly wisdom. Okay, look at verse 11. It says, then the Jews, there's a second confused group. The Jews sought him at the feast and they said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. And some people said he's good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Okay, don't miss this church. Jesus was not being deceptive to his brothers. He's attempting to avoid unwanted publicity. And so he did end up going, but his time was not according to their timeline. If it was, they would have said immediately when the Jews asked him, oh yeah, he's right here, here's Jesus, and his time would have come. And so Jesus was on a different timetable. And you'll notice in verses 11 through 13, different responses people have with Jesus. Some say he's good, some complain, some uh, are afraid. Uh, There's always different responses to Jesus. But in this moment, he's on his way, and he's trusting his father for the right timing. In his life. Uh, oh, that we would learn this same faithful reliance and submission upon the Father for our own timing. Uh, at this moment, Jesus is literally the talk of the town, but soon that fever pitch is gonna calm down. And around day four, as we'll see next week, Jesus walks into the feast and walks into town. His hour's not yet come. And we'll revisit that idea at the end of the sermon together. But in the meantime, Jesus is now gonna speak to a second group the Jews and he's going to clarify his doctrine. So notice verse 14, it says now about the middle of the feast Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marvelled, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? Other times people were amazed, how does he have such authority? He doesn't teach like our teachers of the law. We read from scripture in Acts chapter 4 that they had the same confused look on their face with James and John and or Peter and John and they said, "Wait, Uh, How are these guys speaking with such clarity and boldness? And they perceived that they were unschooled and ordinary, but they had been with Jesus. There's something different about the teaching, the authority of Jesus. And so Jesus, verse 16, answered and said this, "'My doctrine is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority.'" He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? I mean, they're seeking to kill him, right? They want to murder him, and that's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. You and I, we were in Sunday school. Do you remember that one? I mean, you don't have to be in church very long to realize murder is probably not on the top of good things to do today. That's not one of the things God's real pleased with. Thou shalt not murder. And here they are, violating one of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, you're trying to kill me. And they're, who, me? No, I mean, maybe Bob, but I'm not, I don't mean to kill you. Who, me? And so notice verse 20. The people answered, said, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And half the Pharisees are kind of like, <laughs> me, actually. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. I raised up that man who is lame. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, it originated with the fathers, but Moses kind of made it, uh, clarified it. You circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus is saying you're not thinking clearly. Okay? Follow me, church, for a minute. Let me have your attention. Jesus' logic is this. You guys are so focused on keeping the law to a T that you're not going to break the Sabbath, but you're willing to perform a circumcision, which is to happen on day eight of a little boy's life. So on day eight, you have to do that circumcision. Sometimes that would land on the Sabbath. And so they would all, be all too willing to perform a circumcision on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is saying, hey listen, that's a rite that is performed ceremoniously to cut away part of the flesh to make someone whole and holy. And what I did is not cut away. I actually built up and raised up a man and made him whole. And I did that and it happened to fall on a Sabbath. So you're not thinking clearly. You're not using wisdom. We've all seen justice, that iconic figure, and justice is blindfolded to show we're not to judge on appearance. But see, these men were making judgment calls against Jesus, and yet in their hearts, they're desiring to break one of the Ten Commandments. They're not seeing clearly. They're not judging justly. Now, I love that Jesus in verse 14 shows up to the feast. And according to verse 14, where is he at? Where is he at? Yell it out, church. He's at the temple. What is he doing? He's teaching. Love this. And as the Jews start marveling, And in their jealousy oppose him, he begins to explain what his doctrine is all about. I love this. Uh, Don't miss this, church. Listen, the words of Jesus are closely and interconnected to the uh, person and work of Jesus, the nature of Jesus. You cannot separate the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, from the person and work, the nature of Jesus. They are interconnected. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, The doctrine is rooted in the person and work of Jesus, just as the person and work of Jesus is rooted in what he teaches. And so for that, I want to show us from this text seven aspects of Jesus' doctrine. You can take a picture of this or jot it down if you're a frivolous writer, a furious writer. Real quick, notice with me that Jesus' doctrine, first of all, touched the ordinary people of his day. Verse 14 says he's teaching in the temple. He's not in the Bible college. He's not in the seminary. He's in the temple. He's teaching the ordinary men and women. I love that. It impacted, his teaching impacted everyday folk. Secondly, Jesus' doctrine is simple, yet marvelous. The men go, wait, where did he learn this stuff? Where did he go to school and study this? They perceived of James and John, uh, Peter and John that they're unschooled, ordinary men. Where did he learn this stuff? It's simple, yet they're marvel. They're marveling at his teaching. Thirdly, Jesus' teaching, verse 16, he explains it didn't come from him. He didn't just come up with it. It didn't originate from him. Like, you know what? Let me just think of this idea. A lot of doctrine just comes out of nowhere. Well, this angel, Moroni, or Gabriel, gave me this new, this new revelation. So I'm going to share it. I'm going to write it down. Uh, uh, it's been written on tablets. So it's been written down. I'm going to share this with you. No, no, no. It didn't originate from man. Uh, number four, Jesus' teaching carries the will and the authority of the Father. He says that, that you know that if you're uh, in God's will. It comes from the Father. It has the authority and the backing of the Father. And number five, it's rooted, his teaching is rooted in bringing glory to the Father, not self. Uh, Jesus says, if you're just here to make yourself glorified, then you're just trying to, you're, that's where teaching comes. It's, just, you're, it's rooted in yourself, not in glorifying the Father. Number six, Jesus' teaching does not lead to unrighteousness, right? He says, you guys are following Moses, but it's leading you to sin. Whoever follows me, it doesn't lead to unrighteousness, right? The the doctrine of the Gnostics, of the Nicolaitans, of the Judaizers in Galatians, those are all doctrines that will lead you to sin. The false prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, will lead you to covetousness and greed. It's not truth. It's sinful doctrine. You're not to follow it, church. I don't care what your upbringing is. Stop it. That's sin. Stop following it. It it doesn't lead to unrighteousness. Uh, Jesus' teaching in no way, number seven, contradicts the law of Moses. He didn't come to dismantle the law, but to fulfill it. And so I love this. Do you see, leave that on the screen, guys. Do you see how Jesus' teaching and his nature are intertwined? We could very well replace the word it on the screen with Jesus. Look at this. Jesus touched the ordinary people of his day. Jesus is simple, yet marvelous. Jesus does not originate from any man. Jesus carries the will and authority of the Father. He is rooted in bringing glory to the Father, not self. Jesus never leads us to unrighteousness, and he in no way contradicts the law of Moses. Isn't that awesome? That's why it's so insane that a teacher, that a pastor would teach something they're not living. That's why when I get up here in the pulpit, I'm a little bit afraid, Not because I'm scared of what you may think, but I'm scared that I, am I living this out, Lord? I don't want to be judged more strictly, but I will be according to James 3.1. And so I realized, man, I can't walk in hypocrisy, right? That's so condemning because what is taught and who it's being taught from are intertwined. Uh, So, man, while we're on this topic, I don't know if you realize I'm like jazzed up about this, but what a great standard for us to take when it comes to evaluating a doctrine, Uh, Look at that on the screen for a minute. What a good standard if I'm going to look at a doctrine in my day. Is this doctrine bringing glory to God or to me? Is this doctrine uh, way too complicated or is it straightforward and simple? Is this doctrine uh, just come from me or is this something like brand new after 2,000 years of church history? Or is this uh, rooted in orthodoxy? Uh, Does the authority and will of the Father Um, allow this to transcend time and culture and space? Or is this just for one people group or one part of of Christendom? Uh, Does this contradict the Bible in any way? uh, Or is it backed up by the entirety of scripture? Does this cause me to sin? Or does this cause me to become more like Jesus? Does this impact ordinary people? Or is it only what PhDs can understand? Jesus' doctrine is not his own. He says it comes from the Father. And I like what one pastor said Clark says, Our blessed Lord, in the character of Messiah, might as well say, My doctrine is not mine, as an ambassador might say, I speak not my own words, but his who sent me. And he speaks these words to draw the attention of the Jews from the teaching of man to the teaching of God. You see, Jesus' brothers were confused about his mission, and these Jews were confused about his message. How can Jesus teach like this if he didn't get schooling? But as he's speaking with them, there's a third group, very confused, and that's the onlooking crowd. The onlooking crowd looks and says, wait, (laughs) he's talking with the religious leaders. I thought they wanted to kill him. They must say, they must be giving the approval that he is the Christ. And so they get confused about where Jesus came from. So in this third section, we're going to see Jesus correcting them about his origin. Look at verse 25. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, and verse 27 is important, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. They see Jesus speaking with the religious leaders, and because he's not getting arrested, they get confused. And they think, well, hey, they must be supporting him. Not only are they confused about that, but they're also wrong about the nature of the Christ. Now, uh, just real quick, the name Christ is not Jesus' last name, and his middle name is not H, okay? Uh, Messiah and Christ are the same title. It's the title, Jesus' title. My title uh, is pastor. Uh, I'm never going to be offended if you call me pilgrim. You don't need to come up and say, oh, pastor, you don't have to use that title. Please don't use reverend, okay? Uh, The newspaper recently was like, hey, can we call you reverend? I'm like, please don't. I don't want to be called reverend. all right? Um, just don't call me, hey, you, all right? That's fine. Uh, Jesus' title is Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, the one who came into the world to save us from our sin. But they're wrong about the nature of, of Christ. They're wrong about the nature of Messiah. They're thinking, oh, yeah, 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 we know he's from Nazareth, Jesus. Uh, we know Joseph and Mary. Come on, when the Messiah comes, we're not going to know anything about him. Now, before you get judgy um, on them, this is what what happens. Um, Back in in Malachi's prophecy, remember when we studied Malachi? In chapter 3, here's where they get this idea. Malachi chapter 3, here's what he says. Behold, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. I really hope you get this right. Who is that in church history? Yes, John the Baptist. Sweet. I am doing my job. All right, so John the Baptist would be the messenger before Jesus, and the Lord whom you seek, Messiah, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, because of that, the word suddenly, the Jews of Jesus' day were not expecting to know anything about Messiah. They didn't expect him to be born as a baby, grow up as a man. They thought he would just show up miraculously in the temple, which prophetically Jesus kind of does here. Notice that he does kind of show up miraculously suddenly to the temple. Anyway. They should have read their Bibles because the Old Testament tells us that Jesus, or that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Martin Luther says this about this group. He says, They've caught the sound of the prophet's clock, Micah, uh, verse 2, but they've not noted the stroke aright. He who does not hear well imagines well. Wow. They heard that Christ was to come that none should know when he came, but they understand not right that coming from God he was to be born of a virgin. And come secretly into the world. Uh, D.A. Carson went further than that. I love his quote here. He says, the Jerusalemites are not as informed of Jesus' true origins as they think. They didn't really know their Bibles. They didn't really know Jesus. So notice what Jesus goes on to teach in verse 28. He cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him. I am from him, and he sent me, okay? Verse 28 is uh, very difficult to translate, but I believe after a fair amount of study, many Greek scholars are correct in translating verse 28 as a question, as a question. You can almost write in a little question mark. You could read it this way. You know me, and you know where I'm from? Uh, I mean, it's meant to be full of irony. You, You think I came from the town of Nazareth? No, no, no. I did not originate from myself. I've been sent in fact, you don't know the one who sent me, And The Jews would have prided themselves on knowing God. And here Jesus calls them their bluff and says, you don't know him. You don't know the Father. If you knew him, you'd recognize that I'm representing him. I'm an ambassador for him. And so by saying that Jesus, when he says, I was sent from God, that was to declare in no uncertain terms that he was indeed the Christ, the Messiah. And so notice their response in verse 30. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him Why? Because his hour had not yet come. There it is again. They sought to seize him, either to arrest him or to promote him as king. But either way, John points out this didn't happen because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? The answer to that is no, no, of course not. They sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Six small words, church. I hope you understand the one big point. The big point that Jesus is making is that it is not yet the hour for me to fulfill the purpose for my incarnation. It's not yet the hour. The entire purpose of Jesus' coming was to culminate in the hour which is the moment of the cross when he became the propitiation for our sins. See, God's sovereignty was clearly at work in preserving Jesus in his work and in his mission for that particular hour. And his life was fully guarded until his time would arrive. There's one moment where they go to throw him off a cliff. Remember that? Early in his ministry, he just slips through the crowd. His hour had not yet come. And we can rest in that same sovereign work in our own life. I really love what George Whitfield used to say on the screen, he said, we are all immortal until our work on earth is done. Jesus would not be harmed or threatened until it was the time, the hour, for him to be glorified and crucified. And the true purpose for his first coming fully realized. And in the same light, guys, we can rest under God's gracious hand of protection and provision until our hour of death. We can rest in his safe keeping. So when did Jesus' hour come? On the screen, uh, John chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify By the time we get to John chapter 17, Jesus has fully obeyed the law. He has completed that work. And now it's time to do the greater work, the work for which he came, the hour to fulfill uh, his work as the propitiation, the blood sacrifice, and to redeem fallen mankind from their sin. That hour was the reason that Jesus came. And so in our text this morning, it seems like three sets of people were totally confused about Jesus and his mission, about who he was. In fact, on the screen, Jesus' brothers are confused about where he was going. They wanted to send him to the throne, and he had to go to the cross. The Jews are confused about what he's saying. They don't understand where his teaching originates from. And the crowds in general are confused about where he was from. And yet, listen, it all makes sense when you understand one singular truth that binds all these together. When you understand that, listen, Jesus was sent that make sense? That Jesus was sent. Uh, Hey, why aren't you going to reveal yourself to the world? Oh, well, uh, because I'm not here on my own. I I was sent. Uh, How are you able to teach without having studied? Oh, well, because I'm not speaking on my own. I I was sent. Wait, wait, wait. Aren't you from Nazareth? Well, yes, from a human standpoint, but I didn't show up there on my own. See, I was sent. Jesus is the apostolos, the sent one. And like these people, we too may misunderstand the purpose for which Jesus came and who Jesus is and what he taught. And my fear is that sometimes we may be confused and totally misunderstand and say things about Jesus that aren't really what Jesus said. And and maybe even in our own life, confuse our own hour, our own teaching, and our own origin. On that note, I want to give us three take-home points as we apply this passage of Scripture. So if you guys are taking notes... Um, good job. Jot these down. Number one, if you get distracted from where you're going, then the mission is compromised. Notice here that Jesus was not persuaded to abandon his path to the cross and exchange it for a comfortable path to the throne. The scripture says, no, he set his face like a flint to Calvary. He would be unmoved, unprovoked, unyielding in his mission. And like Jesus, you and I, we need to never forget that we are sent ones. He says, as the Father sent me, so I send thee. We were sent on purpose for a purpose. I read this week a crazy awesome story. Charles Swindoll tells this story about the Church of God grill, okay? Back when Yellow Pages were a thing. You guys remember Yellow Pages? Now it's Yelp or Google. But how many of you ever used the Yellow Pages to search for something? All right, some of you young guys know you didn't. All right, uh, Yellow Pages. So he's looking in Atlanta for a place to eat. And he looks through the Yellow Pages and comes across, he wanted some chicken. He comes across Church of God Grill. I think we have a picture of it. Church of God Grill. And so he goes on the phone to call the number. He says, where'd you get the name Church of God Grill? Well, the guy answered, said, well, actually, I'm a pastor. And we started a church here, and we were really impacting the community. And after church, we decided to start serving fried chicken, Well, the fried chicken took off, and people stopped coming to church, but they kept coming for the fried chicken, so we just kept the restaurant and kept the name, and now we're known as Church of God Grill. Wow, interesting. Uh, Swindoll says this about that. He says, this incident is not unlike many churches, denominations, and individuals who over time have drifted away from their original purpose. Church, Jesus didn't call us to make fried chicken, but to make disciples. Okay, don't forget where we're going. Don't compromise the mission. As Spurgeon said it this way. A church that does not exist to reclaim heathenism, to fight evil, to destroy error, to put down falsehood, a church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice, and to hold up righteousness is a church that has no right to be. Not for yourself, oh church, do you exist any more than Christ existed for himself. And if you get distracted from where you're going, then the mission is compromised. Secondly, as we apply this, if you get distracted from what you believe or what you teach, then the message is compromised. Jesus knew his doctrine, he spoke it clearly, he spoke it boldly, and we must as well. Now, some of us will shrink away from doctrine, away from theology, but listen, it's incredibly important to know and and know what we believe and why we believe it. I like what C.S. Lewis says about doctrine. He said, doctrines are like maps. They are not the reality and may not be as exciting as reality, but they chart reality for us in a vital way. Just as studying a map of the shore of the Atlantic is not as exciting as walking along the Atlantic coast itself, especially this past weekend, Uh, so studying the doctrine of atonement is not exactly the same as the experiencing the cross itself. But the purpose of a map is to represent, graph, and explain the reality. If you want to find your way, you need to have a reliable map and we should consult it frequently. Church, do you know doctrine? Do you know theology? You should study it and consult it frequently. Uh, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4:3, the time or the hour will come when they, when people will not endure sound doctrine. Guess what, church, we're in that time, we're in that hour today. We're living in those days, and so we as Christ followers need to be like Jesus. We need to know and we need to study and teach and safeguard sound doctrine. Don't get distracted from what you believe or you'll compromise the message. Thirdly, if we get distracted from where you're from, then the motivation, the motivation is compromised. See, Jesus would not be persuaded that he was simply a man from Nazareth. No, he was sent from the Father, and in like manner, we must remember who we are in Christ. The famous German philosopher, Schleiermacher, uh, who did a lot to uh, progress modern thought, was sitting alone on a park bench in the city one day and a a policeman went up to him thinking he was a vagrant and he said to this great philosopher he's like who are you and Schleiermacher replied I wish I knew (laughs) I wish I knew okay Jesus wasn't dissuaded from who he was from knowing his origin from the father if he were merely from Nazareth he wasn't sent from above what would motivate him to Calvary no he was never dissuaded never distracted from who he was and who had sent him and neither should we be I want to invite the band forward, and we're going to close in song together. I want you to go ahead and close your Bibles, get settled. I have a pastor's challenge for us this morning. You may have heard me give us this challenge before, but I think it's timely. My challenge for us this week is to, here it is, be a battleship, not a cruise ship. All Christ followers are on board one of these two ships. And the behaviors on those vessels couldn't be more different. On one of them, you are being catered and cared for with luxury, it's a, focus is a voyage of leisure. And you've got all these activities and programs to take part in, and the crew is there, employed to wait on your every beck and call. But the other ship is also on a voyage, but it's on a voyage of purpose, it's on a mission. And everyone on board is unified in their mission. The people are fed on that ship consistently, constantly, but not for luxury. The mealtime is designed to fortify their strength. And there's lots of unique tasks on that ship as well, but everyone's given a job to do, a task to do. And everyone's involved to accomplish the greater good at the expense of the individual's comfort or even recognition. Many of you have heard of the Don Cesar up in St. Pete. It's called the Pink Palace. Beautiful, romantic, glamorous place. But you guys know in 1942, the U.S. Army actually bought the hotel to be used as a sub base, hospital, and then a convalescent center for airmen coming back from their tour in World War II. What was a place of luxury was transformed into a place to help serve troops and aid in the war effort. And I wonder this morning if you're looking for shoreline, if you're looking for church to be a place that caters to your luxurious needs. Or if you're realizing that we've been called on purpose, for purpose, like Jesus, we don't exist for ourselves, but we're here to be used for the Father, for the greater good. Are we on a cruise ship? Are we on a battleship? Are we like Jesus? Are we willing to know the hour for which we've been sent, focusing on what we believe, no matter who it puts us against, staying true to who we are in him, no matter what culture around us suggests. What kind of ship are you on? I want to challenge you to be a battleship, not a cruise ship. Don't say, what can the church do for me today? But, hey, how can I serve Jesus? And if it's involved in this church, awesome. How can I serve him? I want to close with a quote from C.T. Studd and have you stand together with me this morning. Stand to your feet. This is kind of a charge I have for us as a church. He says, too long have we been waiting for one another to begin. The time of waiting has passed. The time of waiting has passed. The hour of God is struck. War is declared. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. The God of heaven, he will fight for us as we for him. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock, saints of Christ, and the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear, Before the world, I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for him. We will live and we will die for him. And we will do it with his joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only our God than live trusting in man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won. And the end of the glorious campaign is in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. Church, don't lose your motivation. Don't lose the mission. And never, ever lose the message. Amen? Father, thank you for sending Jesus, the sent one. We thank you that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And today we ask that we would in like manner be sent from Jesus to our community, to the ends of our earth. We thank you that all we have is in Christ, that as we sing this closing song, that, Lord, it's all about Jesus. We look to him this morning for our hope, for our forgiveness, and for our future. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. For more content, visit our website, thisishoreline.com. Make sure to tune in next time as we continue our study through the Gospel of John in the series, I Am.